In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we encounter the reality that the gospel story has the power to transform every single aspect of our story. And that's exactly what we were made for. This is Ephesians, and we're Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Who's the oldest person you know? God? That's the, that's the good Sunday school answer. That's very true. Santa Claus, yeah, he's pretty old. What about like in your life? Who's the old? Your grandma. There you go. Your grandpa? Mimi. Okay, how old are some of those people? 72? 72? 92? 91? Anybody know anybody older than 92? I'm going to show her to you. This is the oldest person in the world right now as we speak. Look at her. She's uh, she's bringing it, right, with the sunglasses? Her name is Lucille Randon, and she is 118 years old. 118 years old. She lives in France, uh, and she's actually a nun, which is a Catholic thing. She is a Catholic nun, and she's 118 years old. So that's pretty incredible. Um, that's pretty old. Did you know the Bible? What are some ways that you can live a long time? Or can ensure that your life will be longer. What are some good things you can do, Tucker? Don't eat your green beans. Don't eat your green beans. False. <laughs> eat your green beans. <clears throat> this guy's going to die. We all know you're going to die young anyway, Tucker. That's just, that's just the way it is. That's fine. Some of us go out in a blaze of glory. What are some other, what are some other things you can do to, to ensure that you live a longer? Believe in Jesus. That's a great answer. We're actually going to get to that. What about to stay healthy for a long time? Eat your vegetables, exercise, things like that. Yeah. Well, as, what's your name, young man? Ezra. That's a great name. I have an Ezra as well. Like Ezra said, there are there is a promise in the Bible about how we can live longer. Eileen just read it for us, and, and we'll read it again. Let's read verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What's it mean to obey? Follow the rules. Well, so do your parents have rules? Yeah, yeah not very many though, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so follow the rules and obey for this is right. What's the opposite of right? Wrong. wrong. Do you know what the Bible's word for wrong is? Sin. That's exactly right. Does anybody know what sin is? What is sin? Anything you think, say, somebody's been going to Good News Club. Anything you think, say, or do that displeases God. If my kids were here, they would they would say it is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what God requires in his law. It's, it's not doing what God wants us to do. And so the opposite of obeying your parents is sin. Disobeying your parents, and it's sin. Now, one caveat, though. There is, what if your parents tell you to do something that's against the Bible? Who should you obey, God or your parents? God. Now, that is an important thing to remember. Sometimes, right, not any of your parents. Your parents are great. But if your parents were to ever say to do something that's not in the Bible, the Bible says you can do what's right. Obey the Bible. Okay, verse 2. There's a new word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise. So if obey means do what your parents say, honor means do it in the right way. 
That's important, right? So if your mom and dad say, hey, don't play Fortnite. That's a good, that's a good rule. When they say don't play Fortnite, you can obey them, but sometimes you maybe obey them by going, ah, right? Anybody ever do that? Come on, mom. Come on, dad. Yeah. Anybody act like that when your parents tell you to do something? Go clean your room. Oh, man, do I have to? Right? That's not honoring, right? You might obey, but you obey like with a stinky attitude, right? Honor means you don't just obey, but you obey in the right way. And here comes the promise. Last verse. Well, actually, this goes back to Exodus. Do you guys remember Moses? Anybody know that name? Moses? He parted the Red Sea, remember? And all the people walked across. Remember, he went up on a mountain and he came down with two stone tablets. Does anybody remember this story? What was written? The Ten Commandments were written on that. The fifth commandment says this. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and that the, that the Lord your God has given you. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of that promise. He says, if you obey your parents, verse 3, if you honor your father and mother, uh, in verse 3, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Here's the promise, that you'll have a good life and you'll have a full life. Don't think about shades. Don't think about Lucille with her sunglasses. He's not saying you're going to live 118 years and ride around in a wheelchair with cool sunglasses. God's already determined. The Bible tells us that God has determined exactly how many days you'll live. Did you know that? He's already determined that. He knows how long you'll live. He's talking about a full life, a life that is happy. Even when things go bad, even when things are difficult, even when uh, there's things in life that might make you want to be happy or sad, he'll give you a good and full life. Did you know that's a promise? And the reason is because your parents, this is the way God designed it, your parents are supposed to obey who? Obey God. And if they obey God, there's like there's some things in there where he says, love others, right? Your parents are supposed to love you. Did you know that? Might not always feel that way, but they are. Most of the time it does, though, doesn't it? You know that your parents love you. God tells your parents to um, uh, feed the hungry. Did you know that? So did you know your parents have to give you food when you're hungry? Yeah. So your parents, when they're obeying God, they're going to help your life be good. So when you obey your parents, you're doing the things that are good for you. And that's the way God designed it to be. And so Jesus, this is the last thing. Did you know Jesus had to obey his mom and dad? Who were his mom and dad? Joseph and Mary. And then he had a heavenly father too. Who's his heavenly father? God. Did you know there was a time that Jesus wasn't sure he wanted to obey? Do you remember this? In the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was about to die, the night before he died. Do you remember this story? He, they were in the upper room and they celebrated com- the first communion meal ever. And then they went out to a garden. And when they got there, Jesus prayed. And do you, does anybody remember what his disciples did? They were supposed to pray, but they did something else. Does anybody remember? They fell asleep. But one of the things that Jesus prayed there is right up here. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now, that's just a way of saying, is there another way to save your people than me having to go and get whipped and get a... 
crown of thorns in my head and get nails in my hands and my feet? Is there any other way to save your people so that I don't have to die on the cross? Because if there is, I would love to do it a different way. But then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you think it was easy to die on the cross? No. No. Is it always easy to obey your mom and dad? No. No. Yeah. But Jesus obeyed his father in heaven. And because Jesus obeyed his father in heaven, John 3.16 can say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you believe on Jesus because he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, if you believe that when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, he made it possible for your sins to be forgiven, how long will your life be? Eternal. In heaven with God. Your days will not just be good on this earth, but they'll be forever in heaven. Isn't that a cool promise? And that's because Jesus obeyed his Father. So even when you have a difficult time obeying your mom and dad, which should be very rarely. (laughs) Remember that Jesus obeyed his father. And because Jesus obeyed his father, you can be a child of God. And then God, Jesus will help you to obey your mom and dad. You won't get it right every time, trust me. I didn't get it right every time. I'm not always a good parent to my kids. Sometimes parents get it wrong too. But because of Jesus... Parents are growing to get better and better at being good parents, and you as children can get better and better at obeying. So will you say these words with me before we dismiss you guys? Jesus obeyed so that I might be saved. And he helps me obey in the very best way. Thank you guys so much. And if anybody disobeys your parents today, I'm going to have them call me. I'm just kidding. You guys have a good day. You're dismissed for your class. Thank you. And that's half our church. Gone instantaneously. Thank you for bearing with me. That was biblical exegesis, by the way. Now we don't have to preach those three verses. You already heard them. By sigh, sigh, relief. That means we only got six verses left to go in this sermon. God doesn't finish, though, with just the kids. He has more to say. He's going to talk to parents. And then he's going to talk to servants and masters in this passage that we have today. And the overarching idea that we're going to get today from this, Lord willing, is that whether you're in authority, and some of us find ourselves in seasons of time, or even in places, maybe week to week, where you find yourself in a place of authority, or you find yourself under authority, right? Some of you find yourself there too, under authority, whether you're in authority or under authority, Your responsibility is the same. To honor the authority of God and to honor the dignity of others. So whether you're a boss or an employee, whether you're a parent or a child, wherever you find yourself, your responsibility is the same. 
honor God and honor the dignity of others. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Paul addresses the parents next. He says, fathers, in verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, right off the bat, know that he's not intentionally excluding mothers. He's intentionally confronting fathers. So in the ancient Roman Empire, fathers ruled the roost, right? Very patriarchal society. They would have had the absolute kingship of the home. And oftentimes, the fathers would let that go to their head. They would become abusive, demeaning, arrogant, speak down to their children, be aggressive with their children. So Paul is intentionally calling them out. This advice isn't only for fathers. This advice is for anyone who finds themselves in authority, and in particularly parents. We all can glean from it. But he knew at the church of Ephesus that the fathers really needed to hear it. And today, the fathers in our families really need to hear it, right? Not in an exclusion, but in a meaning of, get your act together, fathers. Set the tone for your family, fathers. And he tells them how to do it. He says, fathers, do not, there's something negative, do not provoke your children to anger, and then there's something positive. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So side one of this coin, the, the, the thing he says do not do is provoke your children to anger. By the way, it doesn't say if your children are angry, you failed. Right? If you have kids, you know that sometimes even when you do the very best job, they're still going to be angry with you. That happens. They're not satisfied with, with what you deem just. They're not satisfied with what you deem right. They're not satisfied with corn off the cob. <laughs> they want the corn to still be on the cob, right? Like There's a million reasons why children still get angry. But when your children get angry, you should ask yourself, did I provoke this? That should be in your mind as a parent. Am I contributing to their anger? Is their anger partially because I'm being unnecessarily harsh? Being mean in my words. I'm, uh, I'm being too quick to come back with anger. Maybe you're in a season where you're impossible to please. No matter what your children do, it doesn't make you happy. And you can think back to your childhood. Maybe you had a season. And I would say this, not to be, I'm not a psychiatrist, but if, if you were raised in a family where your parents acted a certain way, then there's two possibilities for you. You'll either adapt those behaviors or you'll swing the pendulum in the complete opposite direction. Not in every case, but that's generally how it works out. And so as you think about your childhood, you should be aware of that in the way that you parent your children. Are you always talking, right? Like I'm always talking to my children, rarely listening, rarely seeking to, to hear what it is that they 
have to say? Do you give your, your kids room to fail, like to try and fail without condemning them and pushing down on them too hard? Are you condemning to your children or, or do you coach them, right? Like, like when they fail, do you come alongside them with condemnation or, or instruction of how they can do better the next time? Are you confronting them in love or are you confronting them with, with condescension? Right? The parents need to get it together too. It's not just the children. This isn't just for the kids. We as parents have a responsibility to our children. I'll just be honest. I'm sarcastic to a fault. And I'm sarcastic with my kids. And I pick on my kids. And I run my mouth with my kids. And a lot of times that's good natured. And it's fun and we laugh about it and it's, it's okay. It's not like it's necessarily a bad thing. But I know when I've crossed the line sometimes into the place where I'm frustrating them and angering them. And if I'm honest, maybe some of you have been there with parents, you get a reaction from your kids and instead of like letting up, you just keep digging in and pushing. There might be a little something healthy to a little bit of that. They got to learn, right? But I go too far sometimes. I hurt my kids. I make them frustrated and upset. Dad's not listening to me. Dad doesn't care. Well, we're being vulnerable. Another thing I've found myself saying to my kids over the last few years is apologizing to them for making them feel small. For condemning them for their actions in such a way that it makes them feel inadequate, little. Makes them feel like they're never going to be able to get it right. Might we not be that way? Might we not belittle our children, show them up, lash out at them in the moments where we're emotionally teetering, right? Have you ever noticed that too? When you kind of are feeling things emotionally, right? All of a sudden it spills out (laughs) against your kids. Do you honor your kids' dignity? Do you treat them as fellow humans, fellow image bearers of God? That's the do not side. Think about those things. You're going to hold your kids to a standard of obedience, and you should because the Bible says you should. And you've got to hold yourself to the standard of verse 4 and other places in Scripture too that call you to live and act in a certain way. And none of us are going to get it right every time. That's what repentance is for. It's another thing you can model with your kids, by the way. Repentance. They'll learn to own their shortcomings if they watch you own your shortcomings. They'll learn to own their sin if you demonstrate how to own your sin. Do that with your kids. They need that. The other thing he says, the positive side, is instead of provoking them to anger, instead bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two words here for us as parents. The first is discipline, and this word is is uh, big enough to encompass two ideas. The idea of correction, right? Like, the, like, a, like a punishment for wrongdoing. That we will punish our children in appropriate ways, right? Again, not too light so that they don't learn their lesson. Not too heavy so that we're not like breaking them down and making them feel demoralized. And, and, but right, as parents, finding that place where they can feel the consequences of the wrong that they've done. They need to learn that lesson. While at the same time, still having hope for growth and development as people, not feeling crushed. But it also has to do with structures. 
the disciplines of, you know, like we would maybe call exercise a discipline. I'm disciplined to exercise. We are structured as parents too. That, that and again, all of us are wired differently, and so our homes all look unique to us. But what are the rhythms that you're putting in place for your children to have the second word, instruction of the Lord? Again, a, a word that includes both knowledge of God, theology, and wisdom for living, practical knowledge. What rhythms are you putting in place? How are you training up your children in the instruction of the Lord? Hear me, your kids don't need to learn how to be popular primarily. Right, like teach them to put on deodorant and, and how to carry on a conversation. Those things are important, but they're not primary. Your kids can be great athletes. They'll have some of the best times and most learning. They'll learn so much in in sports at this age. But that's not the primary thing that they need, is to learn how to be good athletes. They, They don't need primarily to become scholars. They don't need primarily to learn how to be individualistic. Or to be their true self. Again, not that these are unimportant things or whatever you would add to that list of things that we try to teach our children and invest in our children. Primarily what they need is to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as they love themselves. That's what your children need. Do you pray with your kids? Do you read the Bible with your kids? Do you live out the Bible with your kids? Do you impart wisdom to them for life? That happens spontaneously and structured. Right? Your kid makes a mistake and spontaneously you enter in to that mistake with them and you and you impart some wisdom to them, some biblical understanding to them. Sponta- most of life is spontaneous. But you also have structures in place where you're regularly able to pray and read with your kids. It doesn't have to be complicated. Right? It doesn't have to be some like 45-minute family worship session at the end of every day where everybody gathers in the living room and you, you learn to play the guitar so that you can have a little church service with your family. But you should pray. Your kids should watch you pray. They should learn how to pray from you because you pray for them. Your kids should know that the Bible is worthy of being read and, and submitted to because their parents are doing that. What does that look like for you? Have you thought about it? Think about it. So Paul talks to, if you've been, we've skipped a week because we did a Mother's Day sermon last week, but he talked to husbands and wives. Now he's talked to parents and children. He's in the home. He's talking about the relationships that are behind the four walls of our homes. He's saying that the gospel story transforms our story. And if the gospel story transforms our story, which is the whole point of Ephesians, then the gospel story is going to, it's going to transform our, our homes, the places where we live, the families that we have. But when we get to verse 5, it, it feels like he's switching to another realm, and, and rightfully so, because we understand a whole different context for what he's about to say than, than the context that he would have been writing to. Because verse 5 says, Slaves... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Now let's own this from the beginning, by the way. This verse and others like it have been abused 
by people who claimed to be Christians, who had plantations, North American slavery. They would hold these verses over the heads of their slaves to, to do evil, unjust, despicable things. But they were taking these verses out of context. I can't address these verses without a quick synopsis of that. I mean, it just, but 10% of the Roman Empire would have been considered slaves. 10% of the Roman Empire. And in the city of Rome in particular, one out of every three people would have been considered a slave. But when we hear the word slave, and rightfully so, because the only way a nation doesn't repeat its past is to own the history and the mistakes of its past. So rightfully so, we've had a picture of the evils of of North American slavery painted for us. And so it's really hard for us to hear the word slave and think of anything but that. And I'm not excusing away what happened in Ephesus, but it was not that level of crazy, that level of evil, that level of sin. The vast majority of the slaves would have either been prisoners, right, of the judicial system, or of war. Or they would have been people who owed a massive debt to somebody, and so they're now become indentured servants to pay that debt off. For an X amount of time, they work as slaves. And if those relationships were good enough with that family, right, instead of going out into abject poverty after they paid off their debt, they would stay as extremely low-income workers, and it would happen almost always within the home. These fam- they, they would be part of the family, so to speak. They would live in the home. They'd be paid way less than what their labor was worth, but they would receive some sort of payment for their work or some sort of freedom for their work or escape some sort of uh, you know, punishment because of their work. But they were still low-class citizens. They still had very little uh, power to, to, to vote or involve themselves in politics or anything like that. It still was not a good thing, but it wasn't the same as, as we see we see it today. In fact, the Bible, and you have to know this because you'll come to these verses in life. If you haven't met somebody who's asked you about them yet, you eventually will. Like, why, why, is the, why doesn't the Bible condemn, outright condemn slavery? People will ask that question. By the way, I just a little quick lesson here. It, the Bible undermines slavery at every turn. North American, chattel, race-based slavery is manifestly among the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization, and the Bible has no place for it. It doesn't. Exodus alone, there's a, a law against kidnapping people, man-stealing. And it's not just a law, it's a law that carries with it the death penalty. That's the book of Exodus, that's Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures condemned what happened in Africa as people were stolen from their homes and families. It was already condemned. Not only that, but, but even in this sort of indentured servitude that you do find in the Old Testament where people are working off a debt that they have to pay, the Old, uh, Old Testament book of Exodus requires that every seventh year, slaves are set free completely. Did you know that? 
that you couldn't enslave someone to pay back a debt any longer than seven years. The Bible undermines slavery at every turn, not to mention the Imago Dei, the image of God. We all carry that with us. Not to mention what Paul writes about the breakdown of all racial divisions in his epistles. Not to mention what John writes in Revelation, the hope of every tribe and tongue and nation before Jesus worshiping at his feet. There is no room, and the Bible undermines it over and over again for slavery. But also know this. Paul's primary job and prophet's primary job is not to change people's circumstances and situations. They voted... Maybe they were involved. They might have marched. I don't know. This isn't against doing any of those things. But the primary concern of Paul was that regardless of your circumstances and situations, I want to give you something that will endure through all of them. That's why Paul doesn't lead with breaking down social structures. Paul leads with Jesus over and over and over again. And that's what he does here in verses 5 through 7. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now here's what we're going to do. Paul wrote this to slaves. Not North American type of slaves, but slaves in Ephesus. We cannot understand that dynamic. Slaves and and masters. That's who he wrote to, though. I'm not trying to, to misguide you on what Paul's main point was, but for us to apply it to us, and we can, these same principles, we can talk about employees and employers. So that's how we're going to frame the rest of these verses as we understand them. What does it look like for us in the workplace, in this life, as we find ourselves in places of of either being an authority and other people are subordinate to us because of rank and, and structure, or we find ourselves being the ones who are subordinate to others? He gives three things. He says, one, work with all your heart. As an employee, as a person who works a job, you should not be half hearted in your engagement of that work. You should give yourself to it. If you're being paid for an hour, you should work an hour. If you're being paid for two hours, you should work for two hours. You should give all of your heart to it. And not just that, but you should work when nobody's watching. He says it's not just for eye service, right? You don't just show up, right? Like when the bo- when everybody knows the boss is going to be there, everybody works hard. No, you work hard all the time. No matter what. No matter who sees you or doesn't see you, work the same way no matter who's watching. And then third, this is the spiritual aspect of it, work as if God is your boss. Because he is. You're under his authority more than you're under anybody else's authority, which means you can work in a situation where your boss is maybe a little bit of a knucklehead and you can still work hard, and you can still give yourself to the job knowing that God sees you, and that God is the one in authority over you, and it's God who's told you to work hard. So even if your boss has told you to work hard, but he's a jerk, right, and you don't want to listen to him, God hasn't been a jerk to you. 
God has loved you. God has given his son on your behalf. God has shown you time and time and time again that he is for you. And he says, give your whole heart. He says, work the same no matter who's watching. And so in particular, if you have a terrible boss, you can tap into those words and still work hard and still give yourself to that job. It's a lot easier to do that if you believe verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. You might have a boss that condemns you even when you do the right thing, but God sees you and he will reward those who diligently seek him. He will reward. Now, that doesn't mean health and wealth this side of heaven, although for some it might be, but that's not the promise. The promise is a reward that is eternal, that God will grant to those who give their lives to doing what is right, no matter who is watching, no matter if their boss is a knucklehead, doesn't matter. Then he turns to masters. This is our final verse. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. First, he says, do the same things. That would have been revolutionary in that day because the power dynamic would have said the boss can do whatever he wants, say whatever he wants, act however he wants, and the, the, empl- the employees, right, the slave master can do whatever he wants. The slave can't. But he says, no, when you interact with those who are subordinate to you, you must be governed by the same principles. You give your whole heart as well. You give your whole heart to the people who are subordinate to you when you're working. You give your whole heart to the company, right? You, you want your employees to give their whole heart to the mission? You give your whole heart to the mission. You get down and lead, not from up here, condemning and pushing. You get down on the ground and you lead with them. You give your whole heart as well. You have integrity when nobody's watching. You want your employees to show integrity when nobody's watching? You live with integrity when nobody's watching. You be governed by the same principles and you work for God. You are not the boss of all the bosses. You're not. You're still subject to the authority of God. And he says, treat others with dignity. He says, treat others with respect. He says, treat others with fairness and selflessness and kindness and justice and gentleness. He says all of those things. And if you have people that are subordinate to you, You must treat them that way because God is your boss. doesn't mean you don't expect hard things from them, that they're going to work hard, they're going to be diligent in their job, but you do that in such a way that carries with it dignity, respect, fairness, kindness, love, all those things that God calls us to. By the way, this turns your job from just being a meaningless nine-to-five thing. Your nine-to-five seven to 11 or whatever, 11 to seven, shift work, is an opportunity for you to display that the gospel changes everything. That the, that the gospel story transforms your story. Now your job becomes a mission assignment. 
It's not just a nine to five job where you, you check the clock and then go home. No. You can clean toilets for the glory of God. You can make subs for the glory of God. You can be a nurse to the glory of God. Your job has meaning, but that meaning is rooted not in us, but in Jesus. See, the only way we can have the power to be employees, to be bosses, to be parents, to be children who walk in tune in Christ-likeness in this way as if Jesus himself helps us. That's why these verses, all the way from uh, husbands and wives through uh, parents and children and slaves and masters, keep saying things like, in the Lord, of the Lord, to the Lord, in the Lord, of the Lord, to the Lord. You have no hope of being a good employee, a godly employee, or a godly boss, a godly parent, a godly husband, a godly wife, apart from Jesus. Let's be honest, we're not great at it, but Jesus was. Remember Jesus with children? He wasn't a parent, but there's that scene where the disciples are like, no, stay back, you can't go to him, he's too busy for you. What does Jesus say? No, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. And he welcomes them, they sit with them, they laugh with him, right? He's welcoming to them, loving to them, towards them. Jesus with his disciples, you talk about a power dynamic, he's the son of God. They're humans, right? There is, there is no lack of distance in that power dynamic, but he doesn't use it to threaten them. No, he uses his, his authority to, to, to promise good things for them. Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He uses authority for their good. And look at Jesus with his father. We already read it with the kids in here, but it bears repeating. Before the cross, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then Jesus at the cross. These are the words I want us to leave with today. This is the heart of Jesus towards his people and towards his mission on the cross. He wasn't in, he wasn't being a, he wasn't in a power struggle. He wasn't trying to prove himself. Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What I said to the kids was true. Just some cutesy thing. Because Jesus obeyed, his father. Because Jesus, because Jesus submitted himself to the will of the father, we see the ultimate example of what it looks like. Have this mind in you, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. He had authority. He didn't hold on to it. He, he didn't care about his reputation more than he cared about obedience and Christ likeness and gentleness and lowliness and love. So he didn't cling to his title. He didn't cling to his reputation. He humbled himself. Took on the form of a servant. Being found in human form, right? All the way to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus, just like I told the kids, gave blood out of his hands and his feet. It's that simple. The gospel is not complex. Gave blood out of his hands and his feet. And the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. 
The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's that simple. In obedience to the Father, Jesus on the cross took the weight of all your sin and mine. Took the punishment for your sin and mine. Was victorious over death. Risen from the dead. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And and watch the end for Jesus. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to be a better dad. You want to be a better mom. You want to be a better employee. You want to be a better boss. You want to be a better husband. You want to be a better wife. Bow the knee to Jesus. Not out of fear, but out of, duh, he wants what's best for me. Nobody's ever loved me this much. Nobody's ever given me so much. Nobody's ever written down the ways for living in such a perfect way that it is not only for the glory of God, but it's also for my joy and satisfaction and happiness. It makes sense to bow the knee to this good king. Bow the knee to this good king. When you find yourself under authority, honor God. Even if your boss is terrible. And when you find yourself in authority, honor the dignity of others just like Jesus did. That's the example for us today. Whether you're in authority or under authority, your responsibility is the same. Honor the authority of God and the dignity of others. Let's pray. Father, might we be more like Jesus. Make us more like Jesus. As husbands and wives and kids and parents and employees and bosses and every aspect. Make us more like Jesus. May that not feel like a burden to us or something that that we hear with guilt and shame, but might we hear it as an opportunity, as an invitation into something beautiful. Knowing that you're patient with us when we fail. You're patient with us when we mess up. That we would trust your love for us and continue striving in your power to be more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.